We're going to start with a reading from Psalm 13 today, which is a, a difficult psalm in, in many ways. It's, it's hard to hear, it's hard to pray, it's heavy, but it's also complex, as you will see, in which it seems like contradictions are, are pressed into it. It begins this way with a question, a, a piercing question. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I have perplexity in my mind and grief in my heart day after day? How long shall my enemy triumph over me? Look upon me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep in death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. And my foes rejoice that I have fallen. But I put my trust in your mercy. And now we turn to some of the complexity. But I put my trust in your mercy. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. I will praise the name of the Lord Most High. You can see, we begin with protest and lament, even accusation. How long, Lord, before you act? And then we end with affirmation. We end with some kind of even acclamation of what God has done. Now, how can all of that possibly be true? How can someone be experiencing absolute abandonment, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, and at the same time, absolute companionship and care, you have dealt richly with me. I think it's less about trying to give us a snapshot of one person's life and more a kind of liturgical icon of what it's like to try to hold together in one life all that is happening to us. There's everything that's going on, and there's everything that God is doing, and we're trying to hold all that together at once. We're trying to see what is really happening and to see God in the midst of all of that and never forget that. So that the Christian life is, is that kind of holding together, compressing together. This sense of abandonment, this sense of isolation and suffering and sorrow with this sense of companionship and intimacy and joy. So that always we're hitting those deep, heavy, resonant notes, and we're hitting these high, joyful, light notes, and and we're making harmony of them somehow. I've shared this with you before, but just again, so you can feel the way in which I think this psalm is is working. A woman came up to me once after a sermon that I I gave, and she said that she, she wanted to share with me her experience because she thought it captured what I was trying to say. She said that she has a a dear friend who had a child late in life. And her firstborn child was dying of cancer. He was in his late teens, and he was dying of cancer while she was pregnant with her last child, her youngest. And there was a moment, this lady said, where she was with her friend in the hospital while her friend was holding her oldest son's face against her belly where he could feel his little brother kicking in the wound. So that all together at once, in one embrace, there's death and loss and sorrow and joy and life and possibility. And that is what the Christian life is like. It's holding all of that together at once, just as this psalm does. So I want to talk this morning about how to hear and pray this psalm in all of its richness. Now, I never do three-point sermons. That just seems cliche. But today is a three-point sermon. So you'll have to forgive me for that. I want to talk about praying this psalm personally, existentially, from our hearts about our own experiences. I want to talk about praying this psalm communally and liturgically. How do we share a psalm like this as a body? And then finally, I want to talk about praying this psalm 
missionally? How do we respond to this, this psalm as a call to share in what Christ is doing in the world? But first, let's talk about how this psalm is a call for us to pray personally and honestly about our experiences. God wants friends, not slaves. This is what he says to his disciples. I have called you no longer slaves, but friends, because I have revealed my heart to you. So much of the way that we talk in church suggests that God sees us as instruments, that we are used by God, that we are tools in God's hand. And there may and certainly is a time and a place for that way of speaking. But we never want that to be the fundamental truth. And you can see how perverse that is if you just turn it around. We would never want to speak of God as a tool in our hand. We would never want to talk about using God. We want to talk instead about enjoying God, about intimacy with God, about friendship with God, and rightly so. But the the reverse is also true. God does not see us as things. He didn't create us to be instruments or tools. He created us to be partners, to be collaborators, to be friends. And it's critical that we understand that it's in that context that we argue with God. We have a good knockdown drag out with God as friends who wound one another faithfully. Now I want to make a distinction between being honest and being truthful. One of the things I've found in my own life is that I'm often honest with people and truthful with God when the reverse is probably what I should be doing. Here's, here's what I mean. Honesty is when I say exactly what I'm thinking without regard for what's actually true. I feel a certain way, and I expose the way I feel so that you have to hear it. Very few relationships in your life are meant for honesty. Right? Please don't be honest with me about what you think about me. Right? I'm not made for that kind of pain. Honesty is, not, is something that very few human beings can bear from each other. Only our most intimate companions, only those who are closest to us and are absolutely trusted can, can be that honest with us about the way that they feel. And can we be that honest with them about the way that we feel? But with God, there is no risk. With God, there is no danger of wounding him. There's no danger of offending him. And so we ought to be absolutely honest with God. And if we're not, then we can't be truthful with each other. If we're worried about protecting God's image, it's because we ultimately don't really trust God's character. Now, again, I love coming and gathering and worshiping and singing with you. But there are times, I have to admit, there are times where I get a little tired of always singing joyful songs. Every once in a while, something in me rises up and I think, who are these people? Are they always happy? I mean, does anyone ever have like a bad time and you just don't want to sing about how good God is? Now again, I believe God is good. And most of the time, I want to sing about it. But every once in a while, I just want to say something like this song. God, what are you doing? And why aren't you doing it better or quicker? Now, that, that needs to be part of the way that we talk to God personally. And if we're afraid to do that, if we're afraid to say to God, God, I don't like what you're doing, or I don't like that you're not doing this, it's because ultimately we don't trust him. It's, it's kind of odd in that way, that the people who trust God most are the first ones to say, God, why? Think about over and over the examples in Scripture in which God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy all of these people and start over, start over with you. And Moses says, no, you're not. That's not who you are. You're not going to do that. Or Abraham. God says, I'm going to destroy these cities. And Abraham says, wait a minute, stop. 
Are you the judge of all the earth, and I'm the one who has to tell you about how to do right? Will you, will for 50, for 10, would you stop your intentions? Would you change your mind? Or Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over and over and over again, Paul saying, I would count myself accursed if my people could be saved. Again and again, we see that one of the marks of saintliness is the willingness to go to God and be honest. God, why? How long? Why not? What are you doing? And this needs to mark, to mark our prayer life. And the more intimate we become with God, the freer we are to pray in that way. Walter Brueggemann talks about it in these terms. He says, in covenant relationships, you have to hold together the dynamic of abandonment of self and assertion of self. And if you ever lose that dynamic, if you ever lose that kind of integration, you end up with all abandonment where you just have servility and you have people who are gracelessly obedient. They're just automatons. They're robots. They just do what they're supposed to do, but there's no life in it. There's no heart in it. Or you end up with people who are always only asserting themselves and never abandoning themselves. And so they live in constant rebellion. But what we need is abandonment and assertion intimately interrelated so that we're always saying to God, God, this is what I think you should be doing, and I don't understand why you're not doing this, but nevertheless, I trust you. And when we get to the bottom line, not your will, but my will be done. But until we get to the bottom line, I'm going to let you hear it. That's the mark of faithful prayer. It's speaking up in the conversation with God to say, listen, God, I know you're God and I'm not, but man, you seem to really not be handling this well. And it's that kind of honesty with God that enables us to be patient with one another and truthful with one another and not be abusive. The, the irony is, the more I'm honest with God in prayer, the more I can be truthful with you and I don't have to be honest with you about what I'm thinking because I can realize just because this thought's coming into my head about you doesn't mean it's true about you. And I can rein it in until I get alone with God and say, God, let me tell you this. Pastor Brent is so domineering and controlling. He reminds me of Mussolini, right? There, there's an inside joke there. You can ask him about that. I, I can say that in prayer to God because I know God is absolutely trustworthy. I know God loves Brent as infinitely as he loves his own son, as he loves me. I can risk being that honest with him. And then, because I can risk that with God and trust that with God in the secret of prayer, I don't have to go to Pastor Brent or send an email or a Facebook message. I can be truthful with him and say, God has put you in my life to care for me. And however difficult that may be, I trust it. Right? That's, that's why honesty in prayer, one of the reasons that honesty in prayer is so critical, that I learn to assert myself and abandon myself all at once. And the deeper I move in prayer, the truer that becomes. Thomas Merton says this about prayer. Prayer does not blind us to the world, but it transforms our vision of the world and makes us see it, all men, and all the history of mankind in the light of God. This does not mean fabricating for ourselves pious rationalizations to explain everything that happens. It involves no surreptitious manipulation of the hard truths of life. We're not explaining anything away. Think, think about how often we try to justify what has happened or hasn't happened by appealing to God's will. And we say, well, I had a flat tire because God meant for me to see you and say something to you. But that's not trusting God. Trusting God is not saying there's a purpose in what's happened. We don't believe in what's happening. We believe in God. We don't think that all things are good. We think God is good. And that no matter what happens, God can make good from that. I'm not looking for a pattern of meaning in my life. 
I'm trusting that no matter what pattern I do or don't see, God is working for my good. And when everything is said and done, he will say, this is good. So that I'm not trying to find clues in my day-to-day experience that prove what God is really up to. That's explaining away. That's rationalization. That's manipulation of my experience. But what I can say is I don't see it. I don't know what God is doing. Do you remember, was it the 90s when we had those images where you were supposed to stare until it suddenly started to form something for you? What were those called? Does anyone remember? 3D posters. Thank you. See, I should be able to remember 3D posters. But I have too much theological knowledge jammed in my head for something like that. All of this Maximus Confessor I've been reading is pushing out 3D posters out of my head. But you remember what that's like? I mean, I never saw one. I looked for hours. I prayed. I prayed in tongues, right? I anointed the 3D charts with oil. I never saw it. But other people would see it. So either it was some kind of elaborate hoax and I was the joke all along, or I just didn't know how to do it. And some of us look at life like that. I think we're, we're watching our lives expecting, oh, now I see what God is doing. That's not how God's work works. Almost certainly, overwhelmingly, all that God is doing in your life, you will never see it until it's finished. And suddenly, either now in this life or in the life to come, you will recognize, oh, that's what God was doing. And until then, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to act as if you're seeing it. You just keep saying, I believe. What Derek said as we were, we were worshiping this morning, no matter what you came in here with, we can declare, God, we believe that you're good. And we just keep on declaring that until it's revealed. So we, we need that kind of honesty. He goes on to say, let no one hope to find in contemplation, Merton, an escape from conflict, from anguish, or from doubt. On the contrary, the deep, inexpressible certitude of the contemplative experience, that sense that I am known by God and I know God, awakens in us a tragic anguish and opens many questions in the depths of the heart like wounds that cannot stop bleeding. That the the more we trust God and the more we come to know the reality of God, the more we're anguished by the fact that God has not yet put the world right. What draws out of us the cry of how long, Lord, is precisely that we know the Lord. We know what He's like. We know His character. And so why isn't He doing something about what we see that's wrong in the world? And the deeper we move into the heart of God, the more that anguish comes from us. And what I want to encourage you to do this morning is let that anguish out in your prayers. Be honest with God about what is happening in your life and the life of the people around you. And let that, trust God with it. Let it fly. Trust God with all of your honesty. Because as that comes up out of you, you start to take on the character of the God who's in you. So not only a call to to honesty, but also a call communally for us to practice hospitality. All all the jokes aside about praise and worship music and sermons that are uplifting and testimonies that are encouraging, it's absolutely crucial that people visit us and attend with us and live with us over the course of months and years realize that there is room here for broken people and people who just don't feel it. There are times... Where if, if all we had were the songs we sing and the sermons we give, you would get the impression that the only people who belong here are people who have their life together. That if, if you don't feel it for God and you don't feel it for church and you don't feel it for ministry, maybe this isn't the place for you. But let me tell you, this is the place for you. It is sanctuary precisely because it's for people who don't feel it. 
people who don't have their life together. That's, that's why God has given us this name. We are sanctuary. You don't go to a sanctuary because you've got it all together. You go to sanctuary because you need a, a safe place. You need space to be in your brokenness. And it's crucial for us as a church to sing and to preach and to talk so that people who are in that place know we mean it. That we too get angry with God. We too are unsure about what God is doing. We get angry with each other and we're not sure what we are doing. We get angry with ourselves. We don't know what we're doing. That's the kind of place this is. That's the kind of community this is. And we've got to find a way to practice hospitality then for the people who are suffering in those ways. I want us to return to Psalm 13, and I'm going to show you two images. And I want you to hear this psalm as the prayer of these people that you're seeing. First, children in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. I want you to see their faces, and I want you to hear this psalm as their prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I have perplexity in my mind and grief in my heart day after day? How long shall my enemy triumph over me? Look upon me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep in death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. And my foes rejoice that I have fallen. But I put my trust in your mercy. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. I will praise the name of the Lord Most High. And then an image of the Coptic Christians who were martyred by ISIS a few years ago. Again, I want you to see their faces and hear this psalm as their prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I have perplexity in my mind and grief in my heart day after day? How long shall my enemy triumph over me? Look upon me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep in death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. And my foes rejoice that I have fallen. But I put my trust in your mercy. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. I will praise the name of the Lord Most High. Now this psalm, if we're not careful, this psalm can, can seem pious. It can seem sentimental. But as soon as you hear it prayed by these men and these children, it loses all of its piety. It loses all of its sentimentality. Because we realize that we're not asking God to give us our best life now. These are martyrs who are saying, you have dealt richly with me. These are martyrs who are not saved from death. Martyrs whose lives end in beheading who are saying, God, do not let my enemy say he's prevailed over me. And that is Christian hope. That even when we are beheaded, even when we are martyred, death doesn't get the last word. And our enemy does not prevail. Because the story of these men and the story of those children is a story not of the triumph of the enemy, but of the futility of evil to overcome good. But we have to recognize the faces of those who are crying out in their sorrow and recognize the wisdom that they learn in their sorrow. Because if we never hear these men and these women and these children crying out to God from the midst of their very real suffering, we'll start to think that suffering is just a delay at the airport. Yesterday, for the second straight weekend, I had a six-hour delay at the airport. 
And about five and a half hours into that, I was pretty sure I was a martyr. But the truth of the matter is, that's meaningless. It's, it's nothing. But I have brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are genuinely suffering. And I have real suffering in my own life. And we have to learn to be hospitable to those who are suffering, not only so that they know they belong, but also because there's a wisdom in them that we need to learn. A kind of sobering a recognition of this is what God is really doing and this is what life is really like. And we, would, we won't be consumed with silliness, with the superficial, when we allow into our community those who are truly suffering and listen to what they're telling us about what they're discovering about God in the midst of their suffering. This is, again, why it's important for those of you who are broken to share your brokenness, not only because there's room for you, not only because we will have compassion for you, but because we want your wisdom or the wisdom of God that's sown into your life in the midst of your brokenness. Sing to us. Preach to us. Testify to us. Share with us what you're seeing about God and about yourself and about your neighbor in the midst of your brokenness. We'll listen. We want to hear. And then finally... This is a call not only to honesty and not only to hospitality, it's a call to participation. Did you notice in the gospel text, Jesus said, whoever welcomes you, welcomes me. I don't know that we know how to take seriously the radical identification that Jesus has with us. So that what's true of him is true of us, and what's true of us is true of him. What happens to him happens to me, what happens to me happens to him. We have a cliche We've all heard it, we've all used it, I've used it, that we are his hands and feet. But like most cliches, it's true, but it's true in a way that keeps us from seeing the truth. Because it makes us think that our relationship to God is is instrumental again, that we're just his hands and feet. But what I want you to realize is that you're not just his hands and feet, you're him. You're his lungs, you're his mouth, you're his breath, you are his presence. Whoever welcomes you welcomes him and welcomes the one who sent him. And therefore... When you're crying out, my God, how long? You are sharing with him in his suffering. There's a passage in Colossians 1 where Paul says what may be the most mind-bending claim in the New Testament. He says to the Colossians, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And let me stop and say, Christians do not rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake. We're not masochists. No matter how dark it may seem at times, We don't rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake. We don't think suffering does us good. We think God does good with our suffering. We rejoice in suffering for the sake of the God who's at work in our suffering and for the sake of our neighbor whom God is saving in our suffering. But we never rejoice in the suffering itself. But in the midst of it, absolutely we do. Because we trust God. Not everything works together for good. But God is at work in all things for good. And we trust that. And so Paul says, I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And I wonder what this would look like if all of us could begin to mature to the place that our sufferings turn our attention not toward ourselves, but out toward our neighbor. With whatever is going wrong in your life right now, what if that suffering were to immediately make you aware that there's someone near you who needs your attention? That's why you're suffering. That's what the cross is. Jesus, who has absolute intimacy with God, unbroken, infinite intimacy with God, turns from that to the shame and the suffering of the cross for you and for me. And to be 
him, to share in his life, to become like Christ, is to make it so that even my own sufferings aren't about me. That whatever is broken in my life, whatever is at odds in my life, is about someone near me if I will just open my eyes, if I will just open my ears. Someone near me needs my attention. And oddly, that turns my wound into a well of life. If, if my bleeding can become the wine of God, the moment I recognize, the moment I recognize that what's broken and flowing out of me isn't for me, it's for someone near me. Now, we can only hear that if we can hear it. Sometimes our brokenness is such that we can't yet think of the other person. And there's no condemnation, no pressure here. But some of you need to realize this is God's call, that your brokenness isn't about you. It's about someone near you that he loves. And he, Paul goes on to say, In my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. What could this mean? I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's how radical the identification is. Of course, in one way, there's nothing lacking. Christ is all in all. He's fulfilled the will of God. He's set down at the right hand of God. He cried out on the cross. It is finished. And yet, what isn't finished is the bringing of all things into the share of Christ. What Christ did to save us, He did once for all, and it's finished. But what Christ does to bring us into His own life is just beginning. And our share in that for our neighbor's sake is just beginning. And to fulfill that, we have to recognize how radically identified with us He is. Not only in our suffering, but in our care for others in their suffering. Maximus Confessor, whom I mentioned earlier, the one who's to blame for me not remembering 3D posters. He said it like this. The mystery of Pentecost is the direct union of those who are in the providence of God with the providence of God Himself. The one who is divinized, made like God, and thus heals the hurts of those who suffer, has the same power of saving providence that God has. This is how radically God wants to identify with you. Not only for you to be in His providence and in His care, but to be His providence and to be His care. And the challenge that I think this text makes to me and to you for now is to not only recognize that God is with us in our suffering and that we can be honest with God in our suffering and that others need us to listen to them in their suffering, but that God is calling us to be His providence to those who are suffering. Not just to cry out to God to send someone to care, but to be the one sent. So God, I end in this prayer. Let me realize how I can be your providence. Not only in need of it, but your answer to the needs of others. God, that you want me not only to be a question that I raise to you, but your answer to someone else's question. God, I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters who can hear this word this morning, that they will hear the challenge and hear the call to become the providence of God. And when we cry out to you, how long? We know your response is, you've already begun to work and you've drawn us into that response. And everyone said, Amen. Pastor Janice.